0: And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the privilege we have every Lord's day to gather. To worship you, to fellowship, and Lord, to be in your word. And as we do each Sunday, I ask you through the Spirit of Truth, counselor, to uh, open our hearts and minds to your word, your truth this morning. In fact, John 17 says, We are sanctified by your word, your word is truth. And so, Lord, uh, remove the distractions, Lord, and. uh, Ultimately, again, our desire is not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. And through the obedience and renewing of our minds, that we would experience true transformation, metamorphosis from the inside out, that we would be more and more conformed and molded and shaped into the image of Jesus. So We love you. Thank you for your word. and ask you to uh, bless our time now in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Last Sunday kind of shared with you that in this series of grace and and as we're peeling back the layers and as God keeps taking us, you know, kind of deeper and deeper and peeling back, you know, from what comes out of our mouth comes out of our heart. And then last Sunday, we went all the way back to the core of our being. Right. Proverbs 4.23 says to, above else, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Right. And we saw in the Bible that your heart is really you. It's your mind, it's your intellect, it's your emotions, it's your will. When you see the word heart, biblically, it represents the core of your being, who you are. And Proverbs says, hey, you need to guard this above all else. Okay, If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you say, Lord, what's the priority? What do I need to really do? What's the priority as a Christian? Well, Proverbs says, above all else, I need to guard my heart. Why? Because every issue in my life flows from it. Every issue. It's the wellspring. Okay, so we want to go all the way back to source. It's our heart. We need to guard it. Why? Because everything in our life ultimately flows from the condition of our heart, right? And in Acts chapter eight, we looked at a gentleman, right? The 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 gospel is going out. It goes into the area of Samaria. There's a guy named Simon the Sorcerer, right? And and Philip shows up and he's doing God's using him, preach the gospel, he's doing signs and wonders. Simon the sorcerer, right, who many thought had some supernatural power. He sees all that's happening. The Bible says he believes some sort of intellectual assent to what's happening. And he's baptized. And he starts following these guys around. Peter and John show up. They start laying hands on the Samaritans. What happens? The Holy Spirit is now bestowed. And in verse 18, Acts 8, 18, it says, When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money and said give me also this ability so that everyone on whom i lay my hands may receive the holy spirit peter answered may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of god with money you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before god repent of this wickedness and pray to the lord perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Right. And, and, and the point of the story was here's Simon and he's, he gets kind of caught up with the crowd and he's excited about all that God is doing. And he's even baptized. He's kind of physically following the apostles around. He goes through some ritual of baptism because I guess everyone else was doing it. But in this interaction from verse 18 forward, we, we see that his heart, his words reveal his heart, right? And in fact, uh, Peter was just blunt he, and basically he was saying, hey, you're not really, you're not really saved. You're not. In fact, outwardly, you say you believe and you went through baptism, but, you know, you really have no part of sharing this. Your heart's not right. You're full of bitterness. You're, you're still a slave to sin and and the challenge for us as believers is to examine our hearts. Because we, and we know many who, and this, this world and this country is filled with churches to this morning, right now. Thousands, if not millions, are sitting in churches around the world on this Lord's Day. Many of them professing. Many of them having been baptized. Many of them serving. Many of them having give giving faithfully. And yet, their heart isn't right. They're really not saved. And we looked at some some pretty pretty powerful scriptures last Sunday, right? Jesus said, many will, will come to me. And didn't we do this? And didn't we do this at OBCF? And didn't we do this? And he's going to say, what? I never knew you. Right? Some of the most painful words ever, right? And, and I shared my heart with you last Sunday that... Man, our heart as as pastors and shepherds here is is that no one who faithfully attends here will ever hear those words because we didn't share that that's in part of the Bible, right? We love to celebrate. People love to come to churches because in a sense it's like, what am I going to get out of it? You know, sometimes churches, we even sort of with the best of intentions say, come to Jesus and he's going to clean up your life. And everything's going to be hunky-dory. And so we may present sort of a a gospel that that just says all the good stuff. The good stuff gospel. But when it comes to hell and sin and repentance and this phrase, I never knew you, some churches shy away from that because that's, that's uncomfortable. And yet, if we're going to be true to God and His Word, we have to preach the whole counsel of God here. Amen? We have to preach the whole counsel of God. Because in Timothy, the church is called the pillar of truth. And we would be doing you a disservice if we sort of just omitted the unfun stuff. You know what I'm saying? And so we have, to, we have to be open and receptive to the whole counsel of God. And, and we're, he says in, in, in Corinthians, examine your hearts. Examine your hearts, right? Where are you? Where are you? And, and, and have you fully trusted Jesus, right? Beyond just what comes out of your mouth, have you really, are you really relying on Him? As much as you're relying right now, you're relying on that pew you're sitting in. In fact, right now, let me give you an illustration. We've done this before several times. Just lift your feet off the ground. Now you're fully relying on that pew, aren't you? See, kind of when your feet's on the ground, you kind of feel like maybe you're helping the pew. You're really not. And that's what it means to believe on Christ is not just what comes out of your mouth, but it's the it's, it's commitment of your whole being. Basically, when you lift your chair, your feet off the ground, your whole being is entrusted to that pew. That's what it means to believe, confess, profess Christ is my whole being is resting on the finished work of Calvary. Right. And so we looked at that. And, and so we saw last Sunday that sometimes our heart may not be right. Even though we're saying the right things and we're doing the right church things, our heart might not be right because we've never submitted. And in fact, we're using church for selfish means. We're using church. I remember years ago, we went to this new church, very big church in San Diego. I was kind of a new believer, right? After church, this guy comes up, super friendly. Hey, how you doing? You new here? Da da da. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. This is a friendly church. Until he said... And I'd like to invite you to a presentation at my house for a business opportunity. You remember that if you're around the 90s when when a certain business opportunity was making its way through the church. And this guy was using fellowship time before and after church insincerely. He was being friendly and wanted to get my name and phone number. So I could be part of his multi-level marketing plan. He was using the church. You know, and, and I was like, wow, really? Really? Yeah, really, right? And it was a condition of, it was, it was just a reflection that some people come to church, and if we're not careful, we slide into, what is it going to give me? How is it meeting my needs? And it's really about me. And, and it's really not, right? That's a condition of our heart. So that was last Sunday. This Sunday, what I want to focus on is is another reason that that some, okay, not intentionally, but some may have may have a, a challenge, heart issue with the Lord, is because when the gospel was initially presented to them, it may have been not really biblically presented. And let me let me let me share let me introduce it this way. Mike Are you saved? You're saved. If something were to happen and and you were standing before the pearly gates today, you believe the gates would open. Why? Why? Okay, 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 awesome. Are you saved today as you sit here? If something were to happen and and you were to stand before the pearly gates, not that that happens biblically, but hypothetically they said, Steve, why shouldn't we let you in it? Because they, they speak King James up there, I guess. But we right. Now that's a good question. <laughs> You're gonna come on Wednesday. I'll get back to you. Be right back. <laughs> well, w- why? 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 What, what? 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 Are you confident in your answer? What would you say? Right? Because we should. We should know that. We. We really should. That should be like a no-brainer. And many, for many of us who've been, right? You should just say, "Boom!" And Mike, I appreciate that answer. Right? It's all about Jesus. But some, some may say, okay, not necessarily anyone here, but some may say, well, you should let me in because I prayed a prayer one time. And if I remember correctly, it was the sinner's prayer. So you should let me in because I prayed a prayer. And that's, that's really challenging. It's really challenging because the prayer that they probably prayed was to God and Jesus. That prayer that they probably prayed had a lot of biblical truth in it, right? Probably affirmed that Jesus died on the cross, probably asked for forgiveness, probably said a lot. But the basis, okay, the basis, the foundation of why they should get into heaven was that they prayed a prayer. Would that work? Would that work? See, some of us, or you may know some, that that have professed to be Christians and you might have been scratching your head like, so-and-so professes to be a Christian, but I just don't see it. Right? Jesus talks about fruit. I just don't see it. And if you were to ask that person, hey, you say you're a Christian, what does that mean? Well, I, I went to this outreach in high school. I went to Hume Lake and one night they had this thing where we pray. And and the counselor said, and this is nothing on Hume Lake, but, you know, the counselors had me recite a prayer. And I filled out a card. So I'm a Christian. Anyone ever hear this? Familiar, right? Very familiar. And yet, if we don't understand what's really happening in the spiritual realm, in the heart realm, we may get confused by all these professing Christians who prayed prayers and yet we don't see any fruit in their life because their heart remained unchanged despite the prayer. You guys understand what I'm saying? Despite the prayer, which had a lot of biblical elements of truth in it, their heart remains unchanged. And if you were to ask them, are you a Christian? They would say yes. And if you said why, they would say because I what? Pray to prayer. And so we want to look at this, this sort of development in the church, where did where did this come from? Where 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 did this idea come from? And so, if you look look in uh, your notes, there and it says, "How do I become a Christian?" Right? Let's look at Acts two. In Acts two, Pentecost has happened. Right? Peter, starting in verse fourteen, we're not going to read all of that. Peter addresses the crowd, right, and he gives a straight up gospel presentation about who Jesus is. Ultimately. Right. And it says let's start in verse thirty six, Acts two thirty six. So Peter is preaching to this crowd, miracle is happened, the Holy Spirit is come. Acts two thirty six. Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It means they were pierced, right? There was conviction came upon them. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? What would you say? Let's say you have a conversation with a family member, a friend, a co-worker. You share the gospel. You share what you believe about Jesus. And then they turn around, ah, you know, wonderful. So, Pat, what do I do? Scott, what do I do? Ernie, what do I do? Carl, what do I do? What's... I get it. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So now what? What would you say? Where would you take them? Where would you go? Well, you need to pray a prayer. Is that what you would do? Where would you go if someone asked that wonderful question? Brothers, what must we... isn't that what we want? When we show our faith, isn't that really the response that we would love to have from those we love the most and want to spend eternity with? Oh, man, that's awesome. I love your testimony. I love who Jesus is. I get it. What do I do? And don't say, call me. Right? Do <laughs> or now that's a good question, you know. Well, what do I do? What would you say? Right? And, and in the church, okay, just, you know, kind of... It would be considered fairly recent in the timeline of Earth. This question has sort of developed and things have developed that really have complicated things for many and bring us to where we are with standing in front of the pearly gates asking that question. So if you look, look on your notes there. It says the development of the sinner's prayer, right? Now, this timeline is kind of very broad. You know, if I were to take you through church history, we'd be here for a year, Right. But just in general, in the pre-1700s, conversion was kind of a private matter. What we mean, what, what they mean is, is people would search the scriptures, they'd go to church, they'd hear teaching, good theology and all that. And then the relationship with the Lord, their conversion experience, for the most part, they would seek the Lord. Where am I with you? Where am I with you? It was, kind of a, it was considered sort of a generally a private matter. Okay? Now, from the 1700s to the 1900s, in the church as a whole, okay, things started to change. Things started to change. There were camp meetings in Kentucky, revival meetings. Lots of people were coming, and with the best of intentions, the, the preachers wanted to create some kind of structure, help identify where people are you know, feeling conviction of the Lord and all this. So they created the mourner's bench. And the mourner's bench was actually a bench literally brought in front of the pastor, right? And the quote-unquote sinners would be asked to come and, and, and in front of everyone and kind of sit there for the message with salvation looming over their heads, right? So, you know, the mourner's bench is either a bench here or, or the next guy, uh, Charles Finney, created the anxious seat for the really bad sinners to come forward. So the front row was for the really bad sinners. And they would sit in the anxious seat during the message. Right? So so went from the mourner's bench. Charles Finney sort of implements the anxious seat. Right? Dwight Moody, Dwight Moody, okay, he says, you know, I'm going to change this a little bit. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach... And I'm going to invite people to the fellowship hall. It's the inquiry room. So instead of the pressure of coming forward and sort of that altar call where you make a decision up front, he said, "If God is stirring you, if you're concerned about your relationship with the Lord, if you're convic- feeling conviction, come talk to us after, in private, for prayer and counseling." I'll be honest with you, I, I've used this in the past. I came from a church that was very altar call oriented. Come to the front, say a prayer or not. And I, something in me, I was like, no, I, I just wasn't settled with that. So I invited people to a, a counseling room afterwards. And it was awesome to see. Because I said, Lord, I'm taking my hands off of this. I don't want any manipulation. I'm just going to say, if God is speaking to your heart and you want further counsel and prayer, come to another room. And it was just amazing to see people come because you don't know. Right? So Moody, he does... The Inquiry Room. right? Then there's a guy in the 1800s called Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday begins this development of large gatherings. Large gatherings designed to draw crowds. Right? And so Billy Sunday starts to incorporate the altar call and people coming forward. Right? In the next progression, you get who? Billy Graham. Billy Graham, known for crusade outreach. He really... Does the altar calls, right? Come just as you are, right? And, and songs, hymns, people coming forward, counselors being there, right? He develops four steps to peace with God, right? Something to walk people through, okay? And then many of you are familiar with Bill Bright. He says, hey, uh, let's not just limit this to crusade outreach. Let's equip everyone to go and be evangelistic in their neighborhoods. So I'm going to create little packs pack. It's called the four spiritual laws. And you can go take these and walk a non-believer through the four spiritual laws, which ends with a very famous sinner's prayer. Okay? Now, let me explain this um, because I don't want to be, I don't be um, misunderstood. This is not casting negativity on any of these guys. This is not a finger-pointing thing. This is like a how could they... No, no, no. I believe that they genuinely... We're like, Lord, if we're going to preach the word, how do we identify those that you're calling out? And I and I and I resonate with them because 20 years ago, I was part of a a parachurch ministry in San Diego. I've shared this with you before. The leader of it said, we're going to do a crusade and we're going to rent the San Diego sports arena. And we're going to invite all the teenagers in San Diego County from the border to Oceanside and all the way east and, and it was left to me to organize it. And I had to not just do the venue and the bands, but I had to train the counselors that were going to be available to the kids when they came forward. And we ended up with like two or 300 counselors because it was open to the, all the churches in the county. And so the question is, what are we going to do, Lord? The gospel is going to go forth. Jesus is going to be lifted up. You know, Miles, he preached sin and repentance. He didn't candy coat it. People are going to respond. He's going to ask them to come forward. And all we could do was in that brief interaction was try to encourage them, try to discern with them where they are, try to give them some points, try to connect them to a church. Right? That was our biggest, my biggest heart was where are you? How can we plug you into a local church? Okay? And so I get this and I get to struggle with this, and yet, part of me wonders where 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 all they where they are today. And and we had, we had to be very careful that we didn't give false assurance to them. We wanted to acknowledge that they came forward. We wanted to acknowledge that God might have been stirring them. We wanted to speak truth to them, but we didn't want to say hey, because you came forward and because you filled out a card and because you prayed with me, you're a Christian. That would have been insincere. That would have been almost a disservice, right? Because we don't know what fruit they're going to bear. You've got to give it time for the fruit to bear, you know. Now, let me ask you this. Is it wrong at all then to say a prayer that reflects your faith in Jesus? No. No. No, praying something, if you want to call it a sinner's prayer, there's nothing wrong with that. If it's a true demonstration, manifestation of where you are with Jesus. But it's completely something else. If you're praying a prayer as the basis of what? Salvation. That's where it gets really tricky and really. Right. And so you're like, oh. Oh. So what are you saying? Are you now being judgmental? Are you being, you know, you're saying that all those people who came forward weren't saved? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is we don't know. And what I am saying is we have to be very careful to assume based on initial outward experiences, manifestations, prayers, words, that someone is what? A Christian. Because we don't know, right? The Bible says man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the what? The heart. And so I share this with you. If you look at that, I mean, this is really since, what, the 1700s. This idea of of altar calls and sinner's prayer and, you know, this idea of coming forward and all that, it's fairly recent. It's fairly recent. And in fact, let me ask you this question because many of you know the scriptures here. Is there any instance, any scripture, any example in the Bible where someone prays a sinner's prayer? No. But there isn't. There isn't. The sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. If you want to call it tradition, it's sort of a tradition that's developed. And you see in the timeline there, it's a tradition that sort of morphed itself. As, as, as pastors over the years have tried to wrestle with the best way to do it. Right? Right? Is there anything wrong with sharing the gospel with people on the street? Is there anything wrong with praying with people on the street? No. We just have to be very careful that the basis of their salvation is Jesus Christ and not having said a prayer. Does that make, does that make sense? Right? That, 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 may, that may help some of you understand why people you know who profess to be Christians who prayed a prayer way back when are living a secular lifestyle? Because in their mind, they prayed a prayer and they got their fire insurance, and I'm good to go. That may help us just to understand those around us, okay? And as a youth pastor, man, it was a struggle because you want the kids to know Jesus, and you know that that there's going to be uh, altar call night. And yet you're hesitant because of all the emotion involved and all the peer pressure involved to go forward or not go forward. And you know what we have to do in the end, guys? Trust God. We just have to release everyone to the Lord and say, Lord, only You know what's going on in this student's life. Only You know where they are. I just got to trust them to You and do my best to shepherd them. That same thing happens at the adult level. Same thing happens at the adult level, right? Now, there are some verses that many of you may have heard growing up to sort of justify the sinner's prayer and the altar call. And I just want to share a few to equip you. This is more like an equipping message, right, to equip you. So let's turn to Revelation 3.20. Anybody ever hear the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart? Is that in the Bible? Is asking Jesus into your heart in the Bible? Okay, it's a fifty fifty proposition. Is asking Jesus into your heart in the Bible. Can you show me a verse that says, if you want to be saved, you need to ask Jesus into your heart? It's not. It's not. And yet how many of you ever heard that? Okay, and my hand is up, how many of you have ever said that? Right? Part of that development is in this and that that in the history that I was reading, some believe that that phrase actually is fairly recent 1960s, 1970s, when children's ministry became very organized and structured and programmatic. So with Vacation Bible School and all these programs to try to communicate this idea of heart and Jesus, this phrase all of a sudden developed, ask Jesus into your heart. And the verse that many use is Revelation 3.20. Look, look at that. This is Jesus talking. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus here. Are you going to let me in to your heart? You get what I'm saying, anyway, right? Yeah, how many, some of you are familiar with this verse, right? Jesus is knocking on your heart. All you got to do is open the door and let him in. Accept Jesus into your heart. The problem is, one, that phrase "accept Jesus into your heart" is not in the Bible. Two, in this verse, in context, right, very important, who is Jesus talking to? Verse 14. Who is the audience here? To the angel of the what? Church. He's talking to a church in Laodicea. He's not this is not talking about going to speak to non believers. This is Jesus calling out a church that has become what? Lukewarm. Church in Laodicea was very wealthy. They became very comfortable, self-sufficient. We don't need you. In the verses prior to that, he says, "Hey, you're lukewarm." This verse is Jesus calling believers back to Him. It doesn't have to do with evangelizing non-believers. It doesn't. Okay, it's very important that we understand. And and again, this is not hammering one. This is not. But this is just anyone having an aha moment. You're like, oh, I get it. Okay, so that verse, there is no asking Jesus into your heart, and, and this verse is really Jesus calling out a church that's become lukewarm. That's what Revelation three twenty is about. He say, "Hey, Church, let me back in." That's like we heard a knock out there. Hey, Steve, can you check who it is? That's Jesus. What's he want? Well, he says OVCF is lukewarm. That's what this verse is about. Okay, it's it's not about. Uh, evangelizing non-believers, right And then let's go back to Romans 10. Acts Romans. Very uh, familiar verse as well. Romans 10:9. okay Romans 10:9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Anyone ever hear that verse before? Right? So like, see? See right there. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. That's a sinner's prayer, isn't it? Is it? Is, that's what, is, that, is that what that means? That you got to say something. You have to say something. You have to pray something, and then you're saved. Is that what verse 9 is really saying? Right? It's not, because what happens, and this is context again, we can't emphasize this, we we stop at 9 and we forget 10. Okay, so let's read 9 and 10 together. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, 4, underline in circle 4. Because what that word for is, why it's therefore, is he's explaining now the logical, chronological order of things. He's explaining verse nine in the way it really works. He says, for. It is with your what? Heart that you believe and are what? Justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. OK. So verse 10 says we are justified by what? What? What's the first thing that results in our justification? Our what? Belief in in, in where? In our heart. And out of that belief in our heart and out of that justification, what follows? What comes out of our mouth? Confessing Jesus is Lord. What comes out of our life? Confessing Jesus is Lord. Do you guys understand? We stop. Many people use that verse out of context, verse 9, because they don't go to 10. But verse 10 is just like 4. That word 4, it's amazing in the Bible how one little word changes everything, right? for, let's read it again, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Woo-hoo! Declared not guilty, fully righteous. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Hey, it's your heart first. Your heart, you get justified. New nature. And what happens? What comes out of your mouth and what comes out of your life confesses and professes Jesus. That's the order. That's the fruit. Right, That's what's going on in these verses. And then some people use, look at verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, you've got to call on the name of Jesus. You've got to say something. You've got to pray something. They use that verse out of context too. What that verse is saying is everyone, meaning salvation is open to everyone. He's talking about the scope and availability and breadth of salvation being open to everyone. He's not focusing on calling as in saying a prayer. But again, it's got twisted. It got misused, you know, I'm not saying intentionally, maybe unintentionally, maybe with the best of intentions. So those two verses. But verse 10 helps us, okay, it's our heart. It's our heart. Brings us right back to what? Heart, right? And so let's look back. Let's go to Acts as we close. One book to your left. So Peter preaches, right? Right? Pentecost has happened. We saw in verse 37, Acts 2:37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Right? It started. God did a work in their heart, brought conviction. He pierced their hearts with the truth. Right? And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does he say? Repent. Repent. Okay? Now, what does it mean to repent? Repent is really the fruit of a changed heart. So, before I knew Jesus, my heart was under control of the sinful nature and I was on the throne. And I'm walking this way. Doot, doot, doot. The truth of who Jesus is, the truth of my sinful condition, the truth of my absolute need for salvation enters my heart. My heart changes. To repent means to turn 180 degrees and just walk that way. So the word repent doesn't mean feel bad, doesn't mean sorrow, doesn't mean regret. It means I was walking with me in control. I professed, believed Jesus. Boom. Now I've repented. I'm now walking as a follower of Christ. That's all that repent means. Okay? And it's a reflection of a change of heart. Now, when it says, and be baptized, you have to understand, this is not teaching salvation baptism. Okay? You, baptism doesn't forgive your sins. What it's saying, and if you understand how that the, the verbs in the original language is constructed, it says, hey, when you repent, your sins are forgiven. Baptism is part of that repentance in terms of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be baptized as a follower of Christ. Okay, that's all that that means. Back then, see, and this is this is how churches kind of changed. Back then, repentance and baptism were like this, inseparable. When someone repented and believed on Jesus, they were baptized like that. It wasn't an option. But if you think about our modern church, re- baptism sort of seems like an option. Have you been baptized? Well, you know, I haven't gotten around to it. Well, I don't know if I really need to. Well, you have to understand the context. Believing on Jesus, repenting and baptizing, it was like one. It it would be like an early Christian. go. What are you talking about? What do you mean you haven't? They would be stunned. How long have you been a Christian? Like 10 years. And you haven't been baptized. They would. How is that? I don't get that. Right. It's not that baptism saves you, but it was an immediate demonstration. I'm in. I'm all in. Yeah, how do I know how does the world know I'm all in? I got baptized. It was just boom. Right? I had an opportunity uh, two days ago to, to marry Graham. Right? To marry Graham, you know, we I counseled with them and we went through the ceremony, right? They exchanged rings, vows and rings, right? Did the rings marry them? Do rings marry people? No the rings are an outward expression of a covenant they had already made before God and to each other. Right? So when I make a covenant to follow Jesus, baptism. Baptism doesn't save me. It's just like, bam, here I am world. I'm a baptized believer. It's just a reflection of the covenant I've already made. That's what we did with with Graham and Andrea. That's why we do the rings. It's It's an expression to all the world. I've made a covenant with someone. I'm in. That's what he's saying right here, right? And so, you know, it's good. Why is it? I was like, Lord, this this kind of seems like a teachy message. But I think it's important for us not just to examine our own hearts to be able to answer that question as Mike did. Why should I let you in to the pearly gates? Hopefully, everyone here and everyone listening on your computers or wherever you are Hopefully after today, you know that please don't say, because I prayed a prayer. Because that is not the basis of our salvation. Who is the object of our faith? Who? It's a who. Jesus. Jesus, right? That great Sunday school answer, right? If you don't know what to say in Sunday school, say Jesus, and you're probably going to be right in some way, right? So why should I let you in? Why should I let you in, Pat Pat, why should why should they let you in the Pearly Gates? <laughs> oh wait, that was backwards to you. Sasuj <laughs> Right? Daryl, why should they let you in the Pearly Gates? Because of who? Jesus! Right? You're relying on Jesus, Daryl, as much as you're relying on that chair to hold you up. That's all you got to say. I have put my full weight, I have put my full life, my full belief in Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. Bam! Gates open. If you pray prayers that profess that, awesome. But please leave here with clarity on this. Okay? The object of our faith, the basis of our salvation is who? Jesus. And what? Resting fully in his finished work at Calvary. Amen? Let's pray together and then, Bill, we can come up and do communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for answering this question How do I become a Christian? Very clearly this morning. It's not about having said a prayer. It's about having rested fully, completely believing as best as we can in our heart that Jesus finished the work at Calvary and paid the price we could never pay and receive it by grace through faith. And as we prepare for communion, again, we want to examine our hearts. What would we say if we stood before the pearly gates and they asked, why should we let you in?